Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 7. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded them to speak. This is the word of the Lord. I just thanked Stephanie for tripping as she left the stage, so hopefully I won't have to do that. It's okay, we're friends. Have you all been following uh, the Tesla Cybertruck saga? I think that after four years, it can be called a saga. If you haven't, Tesla is like Prius's cooler stepbrother, uh, and they've been really crushing the electric car game for the last couple years. Uh, so when rumors stirred a couple years ago that they were making a truck, people got really excited. They thought, man, this is going to revolutionize the truck industry. Or like, you know, that one uncle I have who for some reason is mad about electric cars, like maybe he will get into <laughs> the Tesla Cybertruck, and, uh, and then in November of 2019, everyone's excitement, collective excitement, became what I think can best be described as bewilderment, uh, as they revealed this. <laughs> the internet thought it was a joke. They thought that they took somebody's eight-year-old nephew's drawing of a truck and made a realistic-looking picture of it and told everybody, like, this is it, and it was like a November, April Fool's joke, and, and, it, and it wasn't. This is actually it. People are buying this thing. Uh, and then your uncle, who was already mad about electric cars, got even more upset, because that's not a truck, right? But let's just say that, like, futuristic zombie apocalypse is your aesthetic for car hunting. Like, that's your vibe. That's what you're into. Let's say that that's true, and I'm offending you right now, because you're really loving this. Even if that's the case, four years ago, they released the prototype, and two weeks ago, the first one rolled off the production line. At best, it's anticlimactic. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and that stuff happens all the time. Something is built up and it gets really excitement. The excitement is growing and then you're disappointed. And it's not that your excitement outpaced reality, it's that reality just ended up not being all that exciting in the first place. Like when you, when you keep hearing about this new movie and you're like, oh man, I'm getting really excited about this, and you finally like go to look it up and Nicolas Cage is in it. Do you know what I mean? You're like, I'm not gonna see that. That's a bummer, it's disappointing. Uh, or like when I was in college, I had friends who were like, you have to listen to this new Coldplay song. And I'm like, Okay, so they finally talked me into it, and outside of Ghost Stories, which is the only good thing Coldplay's ever created, I listened to it and I was like, didn't they already release this song? Like, isn't this exactly what everything else that they've ever done is? It's just like a, a recapitulation of the same thing. It, it, at, at best, it's underwhelming, it's anticlimactic, things happen all the time that are just honestly disappointing. <laughs> On that note, we're in the middle of a really long series right now based on the second book, or more accurately, scroll in the scriptures of the same name called Exodus. And today we hit the point where most of us stop reading, or maybe we keep reading, but we're not really tuned in. We tune out, 
we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. Up until now, the story of Exodus has really been cinematic. I mean, y'all have been here for it. God's chosen people had been enslaved, and through a wild series of what we call the Ten Plagues, which is a showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt, Yahweh is victorious, and Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. Credits roll. Sequel. But just when you thought it was over, right? You're, you're like, oh, it's done. We're good. This is all good. Just when you thought it was over, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he tries to capture them again. And Israel, being led somehow by a pillar of fire and smoke, wandering in the desert, turn around to see that in behind them is this advancing army. And in front of them is this enormous, unpassable sea. So God splits the sea and the entire nation, all of them, walk through on dry ground. But just as the last Israelite makes it, the waters crash back on the murderous Egyptians. God rescues Israel from sudden death again and again and again. I mean, this is some top-notch drama. Like, this is some stuff that's reserved for a few series, not just one. And it's not just the narrative that seems to be reaching a climax. It's actually the whole literary structure. In ancient Near Eastern literature, the structure of a piece of writing was deliberately crafted to highlight certain parts. So Israel, as an example, Exodus, as an example, is clearly divided into two parts, and today we are in the very middle of it which is sort of Bible author for saying, pay attention because something's about to happen. We've been climbing this literary and narrative mountain for the last few months. What came before this builds up to this moment and what comes after it will only look back to expound on this moment. Throughout the series, we've been talking about this flow in the Scroll of Exodus. You remember when Bethany, a couple weeks ago, made, made us not just sing it, but dance it. I will do neither, but I do want you to remember that you did it. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. That's great. Some of you did it. This is great. So what comes today in the Ten Commandments is part liberation and part renewal. So what happens? Well, it starts with Israel camping at the base of Mount Sinai, where despite their very bad attitudes, again and again, very bad attitudes, Yahweh still extends an invitation into covenant. And the people... Are, they're so excited. They absolutely are ready for it. They're really excited for it. In Exodus 19, they tell Moses, we will do everything Yahweh says. They're ready for this. So Moses takes uh, this answer from the people back up to God on the mountain, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, uh, which honestly doesn't feel like a compelling new beginning, does it? Like, even fourth grade me, I remember in fourth grade memorizing the Ten Commandments, I was like, Read the room, God, like this isn't, I don't know, man, this is what you're going for, maybe. Uh, and honestly, it can almost feel like a bait and switch, can't it? Uh, like God was all, okay, everybody, calm down, fun's over, it's time to get serious. Here are the rules. And everybody's like, whoa, what's happening? And I remember not just feeling anticlimactic at nine years old, I remember it also feeling a little bit irrelevant to me. Like I remember reading through it and going like, I guess I'm fine. Like, like, I was a Christian, and I didn't believe in other gods, and I went to church on Sundays, and I didn't cuss, and I never felt tempted to pray to a piece of wood or a, a stone over here, so like, check on the first few commands, right? I didn't even try it, but there it is. Uh, and I liked my parents, uh, and I would never think of hurting anyone physically. I was more of a words kid, and that didn't count as murder. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't... I wasn't married. I felt financially as stable enough as a kid to like not like 
take something that somebody else, so check on the next few commands. And I hadn't gone to court yet, so I didn't even have the chance to bear false witness, even though I had no clue what that meant. And I knew slavery was bad, and I didn't really know anyone who owned an ox or a donkey that I could have coveted, if I even understood what coveting was. So like, check on the last few. Honestly, I went through and I was like, oh, we're good, all right. I can memorize this, this is great, let's, let's do it. Now, my guess is, as I walk through those lists, some of you are remembering the Ten Commandments. My guess is that everyone here is at least familiar with the content of the Ten Commandments. So, rather than spending our whole time today talking about what they are, and we'll get there, we'll definitely talk about what they are, I, I want to spend most of our time today talking about why they are, about what God is up to and why the Israelites saw these Ten Commandments as the climax of God's generosity and kindness so far. And not like us, looking back, where we think it's like that eight-foot receipt that you get from Costco that you're just like reading out loud and you're like, this isn't it. I don't know what, why was this what we were building up to? I want to explore today what I was missing until very recently that Israel seemed to understand from the get-go. Does that sound okay? We all ready for that? Great. We're doing it anyway. Uh, to start, many of us assume, and this is really important, many of us assume that the law was the way by which Israel earned or gained salvation, that they kept the law and then they were saved. But that's not the story. You all have sat here and listened through the story. That's not the way that it happens. That's not the narrative. What happens at Sinai cannot be a prerequisite for salvation. Why? Because they were already saved. Salvation was already given. The law came after their rescue, not before. Meaning something else has to be happened. Go back again to our creation, enslavement, or liberation, renewal paradigm. The law exists because God was not satisfied to stop at just liberation. That wasn't it for God. God does not just want to liberate people from enslavement. God liberates people for Renewal. The law exists for renewal. A decade or so ago at Foster Parents Night Out, well, less than a decade ago, as we just learned, less than a decade ago, uh, I was hanging out with, the, there's this young kid named Sam, not his real name, but for privacy purposes, we'll all agree that his name is Sam, who for just months at a time, with absolutely no warning, would just like take off running, just in the middle of a science class or gym or wherever where he'd just take off running. And, and the, the building we're in is a maze. I mean, it is an enormous gymnasium. It is like three flights of stairs full of offices and closets and classrooms and all kinds of things that you can get lost in. So two of us volunteers would run and run and around the building with Sam until he'd get tired and he'd go back to class. So one particular evening, uh, in the middle of gym time, he ran. He booked it. He just middle gym time, couldn't take it, totally left. Myself and another volunteer, we ran with him. That marathon around ended eventually in one of these classrooms where he kind of dove under a table, laid on his back, was kind of kicking the table and whatever, having no clue what to do because I'd spent the last few months being like, okay, we can't do this again. And not this because I'm like trying to be on his level, but this because I'm out of breath. I'm like, we can't do this. Like, I can't do this again. Like, it's not safe. Like, we need uh, to be, you know, in order. We need to do all these things. Like, I had no clue what to do. So I was like, you know what? Let's try this. And I opted to crawl under the table with him, like five feet away, and just mirror his, his action. I was on my back and he was on his back. Not wisdom, total luck. Had no clue what I was doing. Just thought, I don't know, let's try this. So there we laid on the floor. Sam kicking the table, talking about whatever was in his mind. Me, totally confused absolutely overwhelmed, not sure what was going on. And then this poor other volunteer who is like, why is he on the ground? Why, why can he not maintain composure? And eventually, uh, Sam slowed down, 
and he got quiet, which is sort of like the turning point where he's ready to go back to class. And I looked at him, and for no particular reason outside of trying to connect and see if he was getting ready, I said, you know, gym time gets really loud sometimes, doesn't it? And he nodded, confused as I was about where I was going with this. Um, and as I said it, something clicked in me. And I said, you know what? Sometimes when I'm in loud rooms with lots of people, I want to run out of those rooms. Is that, do you feel that sometimes? And he, and he nodded. Uh, and I said, you know what, I wonder, I wonder if this could help. When I get in that, that space, I like to grab somebody to go with me because I don't want to feel alone. So do you think next time you feel this, you could grab a leader, and they'll grab another leader, no questions asked, and go to another room and just hang out for a bit until you're ready to go back? And he agreed, and then we went back to class. Me thinking like, all right, another night over, we did that. Who knows what's going to happen? Fast forward to the next year, and Sam's whole experience at Foster Parents Night Out had changed. Not only was he able to stay in gym time, he actually became one of the gym leaders with our leaders. He was helping run and lead gym time. Dr. Carmen Imes, in her book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, which you're going to hear a lot from today, fair warning, calls this under-the-table talk liminal space. In fact, she argues that all of Israel's, as we look at Exodus, all of Israel's time in the desert and at Mount Sinai is liminal space. She writes, and I think this is important, so listen to this, trust is not automatic. And God doesn't expect it to be. He patiently works on Israel's behalf until they can see that he is worthy of their confidence. God's guidance and protection of the Israelites cultivate their trust in him and in Moses. The wilderness is his classroom. He has work to do in the Israelites that can only be done in liminal space. Or as Nije put it last week, we have to learn to love and trust and obey God. Liminal space is the space between who you were and who you are. Liminal space is the space of becoming. It's the first week of orientation in college. Uh, it's the one-hour wait in line at your favorite restaurant. It's the plane ride to your vacation. It's the nine months before your baby is born. It's the honeymoon after your wedding. It is the 20 minutes in every superhero origin story where they get their powers and figure out how to use them, usually wearing some pajama version of what will be their final costume. Liminal space is where we are allowed the unusual opportunity to receive and integrate something. Liminal space is not about compliance. Bethany talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not about compliance, it's about participation. It's not about obedience, it is a reorientation of relationship. And it involves this odd feeling of being outside of time, of interacting somehow in unique ways with your past and your present and your future all, all at once. And when we consider God giving uh, the Ten Commandments to Israel, I think they fit this mold. I think God has in mind the past and the present and the future of Israel. So a word on each. As Nijay said last week, the desert is a theologically significant place in the Bible because it is an image of discipleship. God doesn't just want to save his people. He wants to save people by transforming them into his own likeness. 
Now, while describing God's actions in any human terms can only be anthropomorphic, and at some point the analogy is going to break down, it's going to unravel, that is true. And one of the best analogies I can find to describe what God is doing with Israel in the desert in relationship to their past is something that we modern Western folks might call trauma-informed care. Far from being an overly therapeutic interpretation of what's going on, I think it's character proof of who God is going to reveal himself to be when a few chapters later, Moses asks to see God's glory. There is deep difficulty in working through trauma, of unlearning narratives that our experiences have taught us. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not cute, it's almost never Instagrammable, it's really hard work and you have to choose it. And there is a jealousy required in caring for people who have experienced trauma. There's a fierceness required to believe something for them that they are not yet ready to hold. It is a hope about their identity, about who they are, who they really are, and their future, about who it is that they're becoming. In giving the law to Israel, God was fiercely holding on to who Israel was created to be and who they were becoming. God is seeking to uproot their sin, things like worshiping other gods, and to heal their trauma of enslavement and displacement and the chronic traumas of of poverty and abuse and dehumanization. In giving the law, God was uprooting identities that they had been given by other humans and other identities that they themselves had chosen. God is uprooting those in place of one that he built in them from their conception. God's plan was to help heal Israel so that they could be the kind of people that God created them to be. Now, we all know that as soon as you look ahead at literally any other story in the Old Testament, take your pick, Israel uh, doesn't always do that. There's always a remnant for sure, but the majority of Israel doesn't follow God's plan wholeheartedly. And working through trauma is not easy. And like Israel, we oftentimes don't choose to participate in our own healing. But even then, even when Israel wandered, even when Israel left the plan of God, God's intention for them never changed. Uh, God reflects on this actually through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years later. God says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. I want us to come to understand the Ten Commandments as God getting under the table with a nation who was racked with trauma and fear and pain and who was confused about what was happening and absolutely terrified about what was gonna happen next. In fact, right before God gives the Ten Commandments, right before he gives them the law, God reminds them who he is. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's saying, Remember, I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who wants your best. I'm the one who heard your cry and who delivered you. He is inviting their trust. 
And then shortly after the, the Ten Commandments are listed, the people get afraid again. And then Moses steps in and he appeals to them, reminding them again and again, not just of what God has done, but of who God is and telling them not to be afraid, but to trust God. Which leads me to God's vision of Israel's present and future. In the past, or in the present, the law was preparing Israel for the promised land, to live in right relationship with Yahweh. And in the future, even if they didn't know it yet, the law was preparing Israel for the coming Messiah, the one who would fulfill the law itself. Now, God's not dumb. God knew Israel wasn't perfect. He's been watching it for a while now. Uh, And he knew that they could and honestly probably would fail, uh, which is why I don't think that obedience, perfect obedience to the law was what God was after. I don't even think it's what he expected of them. God's intentions, I think, as we read the scriptures, were for them to learn to keep the law. Dr. Imes goes on to write, talking specifically about the Ten Commandments, this is not legislation in the modern sense, but, this is important, we'll come back to it, character formation. These instructions paint an ideal picture of a covenant-keeping Israelite, including both outward behavior and inward motivation. And she goes on to write, in other words, you can trust the God who has thundered on the mountain. He is not out to get you. I think some of you need to hear that today. God is not out to get you. Yes, he's calling you to a high standard of behavior. He expects a lot from you, but he wants you to succeed at covenant faithfulness. God is for you. And Jesus, the exact image of God, was also never after right behavior for the sake of right behavior. In fact, he rebukes the Pharisees time and again for that. From the beginning, God has always been after something more. God has been after renewal and transformation and the increasing knowledge of his love. God is after us learning and leaning into relationship with him. And so it matters that the 10 commandments were given to Israel in this liminal space because it reminded them that their outward journey matched their inward journey. God was working to restore his people, to uproot the cyclical nature of sin. God knew that without intervention, the sins that they incurred could only be reproduced by them. And so the Ten Commandments, the foundation of life in covenant with God, is not a bill of rights, it's a bill of other people's rights. He's training them. In the law, God was giving Israel a map, not to get out of the desert, but to get the desert out of them, and not to get into the promised land, but to get the promised land into them. The 10 commandments were a means by which God was helping Israel recalibrate the way that they saw the world. A care plan, an action plan, a framework to reinterpret what's happening to know the God who saved them, to learn obedience, and to establish a new way of doing life together in relationship with God and in relationship with God's people. So imagine living in the ancient Near East where all you knew was that there were these gods who controlled things that you couldn't control, things like weather and fertility and crops, and your survival really depended on these things. They revolved around them, in fact. Uh, But the gods were also fickle. They were unpredictable. You didn't really know what they wanted. They didn't really tell you what they wanted. You kind of just had to guess and hope you got it right. So let's say one year you had a great harvest. It went really well. You want to thank the gods for the harvest that they gave you. You go, let's give them 5%. 
You take 5% of your crop, you bring it to the temple, you give it to the gods. Uh, what about next year? Your crop goes great again. Does 5% look stingy? Or is like 5% like appropriate? I don't know, we can't risk it. Let's give 10%. And year after year, this would continue until things become so unhinged that people begin sacrificing their own children. Assuming that if they didn't, what if the gods didn't feed us and then we all died? This is the context for Israel's interaction with Yahweh. You see, gods did not make covenants with people. People made covenants with people, but gods never made covenants with people. So the Ten Commandments help answer the question that nobody had the answer to at the time. What does it mean, what does it entail to be in covenant with Yahweh? And so the law then was a means by which Israel could know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they were right with God. And it's worth saying that God wasn't being like that parent who disciplines neighbor kids. Do you know what I mean? Don't do that. That's not what God was doing. These rules were not for the nations surrounding Israel. Why? Because they weren't in covenant with Yahweh. Israel was. These were the house rules for Israel. And Israel was therefore grateful for the law. It was a gift to them. In fact, there was and is deep conviction uh, for both faithful Jewish followers and Christian followers uh, that the law is a gift. The law was given for our good. And don't believe me, go back and read all of Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, and it's all about how beautiful and good the law is. Here's an excerpt from Psalm 19. The law, the Torah of Yahweh, is perfect. What does it do? It refreshes the soul. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of Yahweh are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of Yahweh are firm, and all of them are righteous. They, the law, the Torah, is much more precious than, than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. The gift was that Israel knew what it meant to, and, look, and took to be in right relationship with God. The law, this is important, the law was not about earning salvation. The law was about expressing salvation. They were already saved. It was about reflecting God's identity to the nations around them, that they might be able to tell the world of the goodness of the God who chose them. And that while other nations may make covenants with other nations, Israel made a covenant with God. So what then were the terms of this covenant? How did Israel show the world that they were different, that God had chosen them? Well, the Ten Commandments are the first 10 of 613 commands in the Torah called the mitzvot. And most scholars and historians agree that these first 10 uh, serve as a sort of thesis or a primer for the rest of them. Uh, so we, we focus on these in a way to understand the rest of them. And passages like um, Exodus 34, 28, among others, tell us uh, that there are 10, you know, this one says here, blah, 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 the Ten Commandments, right? But we don't actually agree on how to number them. 
which is odd. I did not know that until starting this study, and I had a huge existential crisis of like, what am I doing? But luckily, there are passages that tell us there are 10. They just aren't really ever numbered anywhere. So for our purposes today, I'm going to actually go with Dr. Imes's numbering system because she does a great job, I think, of combining both of the classic numbering systems. Some of you are like, there's numbering systems? That was me last week. There are numbering systems, and I think some of us are familiar with one of them, and some of us are familiar with the other. She does a great job of combining both, um, so I'll use hers. Flip over to Exodus 20 so that you can follow along um, with these. Dr. Imes suggests that the first command includes all of verses two through six, beginning with a declaration and a reminder about who he is. Yahweh goes on to say that he alone is to be their God. So the first command then is worship only Yahweh. Among all the gods and deities and idols in the world, our allegiance is only to be to Yahweh. And in this command, we're also told not to make any images of God. Why? Because we are the images of God. In Genesis chapter one, God says, let us make humans in our image. So we don't need to make an image of God because that's us, it's me, it's you. We carry God's image, which is closely then tied into the second command in verse seven, that as we carry God's image, so we are to carry God's name, which is a Hebrew idiom for his reputation. So command two, represent Yahweh well. This is the clue that we then use to look at the whole rest of the law. More than just not using God's name or title when you swear, though probably not less, let's be honest. Uh, it means that when the world watches us, the way that we live, our words, our actions, our behaviors, our communities, we need to represent Yahweh well. They need to get a good image of who God is. The next chunk then gives us the third command. Remember the Sabbath day. Now, we've done a ton of work on Sabbath at Bridgetown and through Practicing the Way. You even got a crash course on it from Nijay last week, so I'm not gonna go into depth here, but I do think it's crucial to remember two things about the Sabbath. One, the Sabbath is a gift, and it's modeled after God's own rest at creation. As bearers of God's image and reputation, we then are invited to imitate God, which leads to the second point, that the Sabbath would have been counterintuitive to a formerly enslaved people who almost certainly would have worked seven days a week. God is telling them, in my economy, rest is crucial. It wasn't simply the master of the house who rested either. Everyone did. The command is clear. Even the animals got to rest on the seventh day. That's incredible. That's so nice of God. Each Sabbath is an expression of trust in the provision of God. Four, honor your father and mother. Now, this is interesting. There is no change in Hebrew. There's no denotation that we're now talking to children. Oftentimes, mom and dad are like, did you hear that one? Honor mom and dad. That's not just for the kids, it's for everyone. Everyone was to honor their parents. Why? Because in a predominantly oral culture, the stories and covenant laws that knit together the fabric of God's people were passed on by their parents, by the elders, and it meant to take care of them in their own old age, which is a statement about the permanence of God's image in us. It does not fade as we get older. God's image remains in us all the way through. Now, probably not related to number four, who can say, is number five, don't murder. 
This one, this one feels pretty straightforward. It's only a couple words in Hebrew. But the verb for murder here, this is interesting, I was like, whoa, uh, is used later in the scripture to, den- to denote both premeditated killing, like when it was your plan in 1 Kings 21, but also accidental killing, like when you didn't even mean to do it. Your millstone like fell on somebody or something, as in Numbers 35. It doesn't matter how or why someone's life is being taken. Without divine approval, we must never do it. It is a reminder that all of us, even the people you don't like, carry God's image and that our responsibility is to steward that and to honor it in each other. But not only that, think back to Exodus 2 when Moses murdered somebody. Do you remember that? You can bet these people who heard him say don't murder could remember that. I think this is hinting at the grace in the law that there is and will be a way back to God and to relationship with God. Next, number six, do not commit adultery. Rooted in the Eden ideal, Yahweh is saying that sexual intimacy is reserved for the covenant of marriage. Why? It's not just archaic. Why? Because marriage reflects Israel's covenant with Yahweh. Both parties give themselves wholly to each other and to no one else. Number seven, you must not steal. If I take something that's yours, I am displaying a lack of gratitude and trust for what God has given me. If there was a theme between commands five through 10, I think it would be, there is enough for everyone. And Yahweh himself will provide. Number eight, you must not give false testimony. Slander would eat away at the community like acid. So this command was about protecting the dignity of others by speaking honestly about them and to them. And then finally, Dr. Imes combines numbers nine and 10 together like this. You must not covet your neighbor's house and you must not covet your neighbor's wife or any other household member. Now, rather than God going like, we need two more, what are they gonna be? Uh, Here's this. These commands are actually unique among all the other eight. Why? Because you can't enforce them. There's no way to prove that somebody has coveted something. If, if they were craving your house and acted on it, they would be stealing. If they were lusting after your wife and acted on it, they would be committing adultery. But this isn't those things. Coveting is a heart posture. It's something that happens between you and God. And it's the internal nature of these two commands that hints at the function of the entire law. I said we'd come back to it. Character formation. God was after who these people were becoming. And the final proof, if I've not got you yet, that these commands were more than just a list of do's and don'ts that we should put at the courthouse, uh, is how Jesus himself interprets them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus Uh, takes that really explicit, clear, only a couple words in Hebrew command about murder and says, no, it's not just about that. It's that for sure. It's also about anger and the way that we steward ourselves when we're mad at someone. And then the one about adultery wasn't actually just about having sex with someone about who isn't your spouse. It was, but it was more than that. It was about lust and the way that we allow our minds and our hearts to consume and use the image of another person. Jesus, looking at the Ten Commandments, ramped them up, not down. Why? Because for Jesus, the law was always about character formation. The Pharisees thought they had it down. We've done the 10, and Jesus said, hold on, you've missed the whole point. Jesus cares about who we're becoming, 
about how that we know that what the things that we do, do do stuff to us and about how our lives told the story of God's news of good grace and mercy and love for the people that he made in his image. Now, to, to end, uh, there's one more detail that's easy to miss, but actually I think displays a really profound and beautiful reality. And maybe you've never wondered this. I hadn't. Uh, why did Moses come down the mountain with two stones? My guess is that it wasn't that God couldn't find one big enough. You know, like he like writes like a kindergartner and is like, I ran out of room, I need another. I don't think, I don't think that was it. I don't think. That means there's probably purpose. There's intention in two. Why? And there's lots of arguments, there's lots of, lots of interpretations about why there is two, but I was captured this week, um, these last few weeks, about one in particular. Many scholars think that the two stones were actually word-for-word copies of each other. Why? Because in that era, when a covenant was made, two copies of that covenant were carved into stone, uh, for one for each nation uh, to, to put up in their town to remember the things that they were covenanting to. So it's just a natural thing. When a covenant was made, two copies were made. But we go on to read that both copies of this covenant, both of these stones were put in the tabernacle before God. Not in the main entryway where everyone could, could see them, but in the Ark of the Covenant. They were put in the presence of God alone. Why? Because while we are to learn to obey and to follow these commands, Yahweh is the covenant keeper. Meaning that a sin against a neighbor is a sin against God himself. God is the protector of each person and the avenger, and the avenger for injustice on their behalf. And this is why King David, after he broke some of what we consider like more of the people-oriented commands, like, you know, just light things like adultery and murder and coveting and all that, he then reflects on it in Psalm 51 and he says that he has sinned against God alone, but he murdered somebody. God alone, why? Because all of the law is connected to loving God. Which is why Jesus then goes on to say later, he says, here's how you sum it up. One, love God. And then he goes on and says, the second is like it, connected, related, love your neighbor. Can you start to see what God was after? Can you see why these 10 commandments felt like good news to Israel? It's the image of a God who saved Israel miraculously over and over and paved a way for soul level healing for hope for a future, and for the promise of security in relationship. God was not fickle. This God was really clear. And the Ten Commandments were the intro into the law that God was then using to prepare Israel for the promised land, and ultimately, even though they had no vision of it yet, for the coming Messiah. Now, as I've sat with this text over the last few weeks, I have been shocked, not really, let's be honest, but shocked by how, how met by God, I've felt. Um, Anyone who knows me knows I love a good rule. I love rules. I love rules in board games. I love rules. Uh, And rule, and here's why, because rules make me feel safe. They give me comfort, because I have learned to find success in rule-based systems. I'm really good at navigating rule-based systems. Uh, But, as I've studied this, I felt God whispering to me that the kind of success I'm finding is not rooted in love, it's rooted in fear. I'm asking questions in the midst of my success, like what what will happen if I do something wrong? Or, Or can I lose my belovedness if I'm not totally 
perfect. There's a fear that's pulling me into this. So like Sam, I emotionally crawl under the table and hide from the chaos around me and the chaos in me. And this last week, God has crawled under the table with me and laid there uh, down next to me. And as we laid there together, God has been showing me some of how I viewed the law entirely wrong. It was never about whether or not God would love me. It was whether or not I would let God love me. Love came before the law did. It was about whether or not I would let God free me, whether I'd let him move me from enslavement and into renewal. Friends, the law invites us, me and you, to be blessable images of the Im- blessable image-bearing partners of a kind and loving God. The law was never about control, God's control or my control or your control. It was always about freedom. Jesus knew this, and it's why he said, I didn't come to abolish that. It's good. I've come to fulfill it, to bring the freedom it promises. And as I've rested with this and in this, um, I'm being invited yet again to return to God the right of deciding what's good for me and what's good for my life. Well, because God is trustworthy with these decisions. And as I learn to trust God's goodness, I feel invited to take a deeper step into holiness or consecration or it's just a fancy way of saying, uh, of setting myself apart for God. Not to earn anything, I've tried, believe me, it didn't work, but because it's who he's made me to be and it's because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of me setting aside my entire life for him. Our life is one of love and a call to holiness under the banner of God's goodness. And as I've prayed for you this week, and I've done a lot of that, uh, I've been wondering if some of you wouldn't be feeling some of the same themes and stirrings yourself as I've been talking. Uh, And so I just wanna invite us, may we listen to these stirrings, and then together, may we turn towards the God who has never left our side.